Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo, uh, and uh, I hope you have your, your cup of joe ready for our Ortho Joe discussion this morning. I certainly have mine. Oh, I be- every morning. I begin with this. I begin okay. with this. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we are uh, definitely people who need this sort of thing uh, to be able to, to move through our day. As, as I've said many times, it's about three, three cups for me. So uh, today we have a, a very, very uh, special panel of experts on a topic that it was uh, brought to our attention by our reader. As, as the people who follow the Ortho Joe podcast know, we established a mailbag, I don't know, three or four months ago. It's orthojoe at jbjs.org. Uh, and um, we invite people to uh, critique uh, what we're saying, to offer suggestions for, for new uh, topics that we could address. And this, uh, this came into the mailbag after we did uh, a Ortho Joe podcast on diversity issues. And this comes from uh, a Brazilian orthopedic surgeon. Her name is Rostanda Morelis. As she notes that she was the first woman in the Brazilian Hip Society in 2010. Then she writes uh, something uh, uh, I, I think is in Portuguese, which I don't understand, but here's, here's she writes. So first of all, ca- let's talk about gender. Ask us why we are not in the journals, meaning female orthopedic surgeons in the journals. She notes, we got pregnant, we have kids, we are vain, we can't be us. Thanks for listening to me, but are the others, are you listening to them? So this is a question really from a listener uh, who's, uh, who's uh, far more eloquent in Portuguese, I'm sure, uh, than she is in English, but does a great job of getting the point across. So what, what are the issues with, uh, with uh, women in orthopedics? And we have two uh, experts on this. My colleague, Ann Van Heest, uh, I've been working with uh, since I arrived in Minnesota in 1997. Anne has uh, been our residency director on two terms and now is our director of education. And Anne has uh, had a major focus on this issue in her academic career. So welcome, Anne. And Mo, would you please introduce uh, Lori for us? Sure, I get the great pleasure also of introducing. First of all, welcome, Anne. And uh, I also know of all of your work uh, in Minnesota, having been a fellow there for some some years ago, some years ago. But uh, I think we're all still young. So I, I feel as young as I was when I did that fellowship circa 2003, 2004. But let me get to Lori. Lori Heemstra is um, soon to be the president-elect of the Canadian Orthopedic Association in June. She'll be the official president-elect. Um, but beyond that, she is a passionate orthopedic surgeon working in Banff, Alberta, and quite frankly, has made um, our society and our organization uh, much more cognizant and aware um, of diversity as a platform for key advocacy. So uh, it's certainly an honor to have her here as well, uh, Laurie. So thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, so maybe we can start out by, uh, maybe I'll just ask Lori uh, to start out. What, what is your response to this Brazilian orthopedic surgeon's comment? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it's a great letter and she brings up really great points. And the problem with diversity is you can't just handpick one little bit and say, 
why? Because the, the answer to the why is really overreaching. So the reason there aren't a lot of women being published in the journals uh, goes back to the systematic disadvantage that women face every day of their careers from the time they're, well, probably since we were toddlers. And so her answer and, and the answer to her question really comes from trying to undo that systematic disadvantage that women have. So for example, I'm a researcher. Uh, if I uh, am disadvantaged to getting grants, so it's been well shown in many papers that women don't get as many grants as men. They don't get the support when they're hired. They don't put out uh, as much because they don't have the support. They don't get the grants. And it's a bit like a snowball rolling uphill to use a sort of Canadian analogy, but you know, if, if you get a grant and you get more grants, grants beget grants, right? So if you have trouble getting your first grant, you have trouble getting your research program on the go, you have trouble publishing more and more, and you, and you, you have trouble getting published in the journals. So it, it's a real bit of disadvantage all the way through our careers. And this is just one way it's shown. Thanks for that. Uh, well, and uh, thanks especially for taking the time out on your vacation. I really appreciate it very much. So what, what are your uh, thoughts in response to our Brazilian colleague? Well, thanks, Mark and Mo, for having us here today. I think this is a great dialogue. And I think Lori brings up some really good points. Um, I would be interested for this particular reader what uh, differences there are in the Brazilian culture. Uh, we know from Lori some differences in the Canadian culture, and there certainly are differences in the United States of America. And I think that that is a fascinating thing in itself, just the global differences as we look as women across the world trying to uh, establish themselves uh, in orthopedic surgery. My own uh, background is obviously in the United States. And I think one of the things that uh, I have published in the Journal of uh, Bone and Joint Surgery uh, is about the number of women being trained. And if you don't train women to be orthopedic surgeons, they can't go on to be faculty and they can't go on to be researchers and they can't go on to be published. So we ha really have to look at the pipeline. And we do have 50% of female medical students in the United States, but we only have 15% of orthopedic surgeons being female. And so it's a really, that's the biggest pipeline issue. And it certainly isn't the surgical lifestyle because 30% uh, of uh, general surgeons are orthopedic surgeons. And uh, even if you look at uh, neurosurgery, uh, you can see that 17% um, are neurosurgery and that's the closest to us. And urology is 25%. So we are by far the furthest behind, whereas colorectal surgery is up to 43%. So it's certainly doable. Um, but there is something about our culture that doesn't promote us. And that is this snowball effect. And I think I could identify that as well, living in Minnesota. Uh, but the snowball effect starts with lots of things. Uh, men get three times more industry support. Um, and in my opinion, it starts a lot for, um, for uh, us supporting each other, and that's males supporting females as well. I, you know, had a particular advantage in that Mark Swinkowski was my chair, and I think that he provided me with many opportunities to advance my career, but the he for she is not true everywhere. And in fact, in 2021, we just published our most recent update, 
And there are 37 programs in the United States that over the last five years have trained zero females. And so if they oh. cannot find a single female available to be able to train in their program, there's something wrong with the culture of that program that women don't want to come there. Well, what what really are the, the major uh, issues with the these these programs? Mo, I know ortho evidence, you've published on this. You've done an extensive deep dive on the kind of the root causes and what what's really behind this? Well, you know what? I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear more from uh, both Lori and Anne on this, but I can tell you back in September of 2020, um, we put out a piece in ortho evidence uh, called equity in surgery, being diverse and inclusive isn't enough. And I think we've seen lots of uh, awareness largely about, okay, we have to find ways to uh, engage uh, women, for example, right? Uh, in orthopedics as one point, I wonder both Lori and Anne, um, you know, there's a difference between opt optics and action. So while we see, um, you know, big pushes towards, okay, we should, we should equalize or whatever that success criteria may look like to some. But I think even now we're seeing more and more um, females in surgery also feeling somewhat disenfranchised and they're coming out and speaking because just being in the program doesn't mean they feel they belong or are feeling included in a, in a way that's meaningful. I wonder if you could speak to those issues of, of the current women who are in orthopedics uh, and what's happening with them. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit, Mo. Um, we are currently in Canada looking at issues just like that because, you know, numbers are important because uh, being able to see a mentor, so seeing someone in your program have a, a, you know, a strong woman be part of the program definitely helps increase the numbers. But clearly just working on increasing the numbers, it, it is not working to improve equity in the profession. So what the women in orthopedics are feeling, and uh, it would be great to have hard data on this, is they're feeling not included. So they struggle to get the same OR time as their male colleagues. They struggle to get funding for their research. They struggle to get support for maternity leaves. They struggle... Um, to get leadership positions. So even though they might be put in a leadership position, they're given all the unpaid positions. They're not given the positions that actually have power. So you're taking these women, you're really setting them up for failure. So it, it's a little bit, uh, you know, if, if, if a man fails or has a bad complication, that speaks poorly on that male surgeon. But if a woman fails, it speaks poorly for the, the whole gender. So if you set up these women, and there's only a few women in orthopedics, if you set them up to fail, so yeah, yeah, we've got our numbers, we've got our numbers, but we're not going to support them, we're not going to give them the things they need, we're not going to push them for leadership positions, we're not going to put them out there, they're going to fail, or at least not excel, and then it just sort of proves the point that women shouldn't be in orthopedics, but that's not the case. It's really that they're not being supported and included, even though they are a number. Right. Thanks right. So, so yeah, that that's great insight. So so uh, so we we really have done some things to address the pipeline issue, but really what the writer is asking about is what 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 happens after the the woman gets into an academic uh, program, and and what what are your thoughts about what's worked there, or what should we be doing more, or what hasn't worked. Yeah, Lori brings up some really good points because it's not just about the diversity numbers, but it's really about equity and it's about inclusion. Mm -hmm. And it's about, you know, not just going out with the guys to the bar, but 
going out with all the people so that everybody is part of the process and that there's really an inclusion type culture. And those are the cultural type changes. I think the things that are helpful, one of the things that I have really um, found to be very helpful is this 30% rule. So this was a study where they looked at insurance companies where they put one woman in each of eight different um, offices and each of the women failed. But when they took the same number of women and put four of them together in one office and four of them together in another office where they were over 30% of that office, then it became part of the culture and those women thrived, those very same women in a different setup. So I do think that if you group women or group people of similar um, backgrounds so that they can uh, help nourish each other and help support each other, I think that that is a great aspect. So trying to get uh, women or underrepresented minorities in, in groups so that they become less of a minority and more of a voice. As Lori pointed out, you know, when you're the token woman, you speak for the whole gender. Then we get to the point where the, we're the token women and there's two of us. And so that, that speaks uh, for the group, but really we wanna have 30% of the group or more is what the social research has said. Well, that's a real challenge for that uh, 30% of, uh, or 30 programs that have never had a female orthopedic resident. Um, any ideas from either one of you how, how, how they're, they're gonna make some progress on, on this, those, those smaller programs that have never had a female resident? And, and yeah, and maybe I jump into and just to add the one point to Mark here is what can I mean realizing that you know the the profession is dominated male dominated what can men be doing um, you know and what action should we be actually taking you know it's easy again to have optics but what are the actions that you require or believe are required uh, to make important changes? Society always thinks that it is the job of the discriminated it against to rise out of their oppression. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't the slaves job to, you know, get rid of slavery because they come from a position of no power. So it's this, that's a bit of an extreme example. Obviously we're not that, but it, you know, women and minorities need their male and non-minority allies to help lead the charge. And I think it ultimately comes to culture change. So, People who have the power tend to like to hold the power. And I think understanding and being able to uh, really determine why they have the power and how actually that is not helpful for society. So even, you know, we're, we're medical doctors, we're surgeons, it comes ultimately down to patient care. So there is growing, growing evidence that having a non-diverse specialty is bad for patient care. There's studies out of Toronto showing that women are 22 times less likely to get a knee replacement than a man, even with the same symptoms, just because they're a woman. And that's in Canada, which actually is one of the better countries if, if you look globally. And so there's huge, huge gender gaps, both in orthopedics, but also for our patients. So if we can show that diversity works, that we'll be happier, we'll be better, and our patient care will be better, I think that helps drive a culture change. Because ultimately, there has to be culture change. And part of that is going to be increasing the number of women. Part of that is going to be increasing the, the number of women leaders. 
but some of it is our male allies and those recognizing that they actually have privilege to use that privilege to help those who are disadvantaged. And how would you respond to what men can do? Yeah, Lori, I would echo what you have to say. And I think this is the whole he for she kind of culture that we're trying to promote. And there are huge advantages for our patient's population. Half of our patients are female and our, uh, our racial and ethnic diversity in, in the United States is increasing rapidly. And there is significant evidence that if uh, males promote females, uh, that there will be significant rewards. And so I think it ultimately improves our patient care. And so I would just continue to advocate ways that um, women can be promoted. I think that there's a number of institutional barriers. I'll just give you one small example. Um, one small example is that the ABOS for board certification in the United States was that you had to work 50, out of 52 weeks a year, you had to work 46 weeks per year. Well, if you take a six week maternity leave, that's an institutional barrier. I mean, that's just a rule in the United States for board certification. So the ABOS changed that so that instead of being 46 weeks per year, it's 46 weeks per year averaged over the five-year residency. That's an institutional change that can be made that allows women to more easily be in orthopedic surgery training during their years when they oftentimes have, uh, have a family. And so I think that helps promote women be part of our specialty. So I think we can each look at the organizations that we're involved in and things that we can do to reduce the institutional barriers that make it difficult for women, particularly in their childbearing years or in the years where they're advancing their careers so that they can be successful surgeons, successful researchers and be promoted in the field. Yeah, thanks for that, Ian. That's a great example. And Laura, your point about uh, we shouldn't be relying on women to make these changes is, is very valuable. There's a piece in this week's New England Journal, an opinion piece on how we are over depending in our uh, medical schools on the black and brown members of the faculty to, to change the, the diversity equation when they're already struggling with other disadvantages and getting their own research done. And uh, uh, it's just not, it's not fair to have them lead the charge. So here again, I, I, I agree with both of you on this. It really, it really comes to us, uh, uh, men. So Mo, let me just, if you were advising one of those 31 programs that have never trained a female, how would you advise that they start if they want to do the right thing here? You know, I, I think, I think, um, the thing that is, it's, it's been part of everything in my own personal way of living, which is saying isn't doing, doing is doing. Um, and I, I do believe that the solution ultimately, um, you know, comes from being open to being educated. I think the solution comes from engaging in a diverse group of, uh, experts, you know, um, and I think the solution comes from actually acting and thinking about, um, the women in your program that are there and saying, how are we contributing um, to their well-being, or how are we contributing to the ongoing barriers that they face? And I think it's easy for, um, for us to have these discussions uh, without the re reality of saying, okay, well, we, we have to be acting on this. We have to, you know, walk the talk. Um, so my simplest thing would be is get educated uh, and get going. Right. And if I could just make a hypothetical, if there's a chair 
chairman, I guess I'd have to say, from one of these 30 plus programs, the way to start might be to find a colleague who uh, is also a senior member of the faculty, obviously also a male, and agree that you're going to do the right thing and purposely select a, a well-qualified female candidate in the residency, connect that person with other female residents and other surgical programs so that they have a network, maybe even find another female faculty member in another surgical department as somebody that they should connect with on a quarterly basis just for, for support, and then pay special attention to supporting that resident, knowing that they're a trailblazer and it's, a, it's gonna be a really rough start. Um, and they're gonna require your support and move forward from there with the next year, finding another qualified woman to join the next class and moving forward in that direction. And, and so, if, I, if I could jump in, Mark, on your point of uh, connecting um, individuals, I, I, I have to bring up that um, I've been well aware of this new uh, alliance, relatively new, right? The, it's called the International Orthopedic Diversity Alliance. I'm pretty sure both Anne and Lori likely have some involvement with it, but it's it seems to be doing uh, and creating awareness and, and really creating um, opportunities for education and connecting people, just as you say, Mark, um, in a way that is beyond just local, but far more than global. And I wonder if either Lori or Anne would be able to speak a little bit to that alliance. Yeah, Mark. So uh, I, or Mark Immel, I was just, I was one of the founding members of IOTA, which is really the brainchild of Jenny Green, who's a hand and rich surgeon in Australia. And Australia is a, a really great example of um, having that change come down from the leadership, as Mark was saying. But IOTA was really established to really create a global community. So just as Anne mentioned at the beginning, you know, we really learn from, from each other and these countries have different challenges. And it's funny, you maybe not even imagine the country that has the highest uh, women in orthopedics represented is actually Estonia. So we've published a couple papers uh, about the numbers of women in orthopedics and IOTA's gone on to formalize a little bit more and they're not just talking about women, but all diversity. So we're working on some educational programs, webinars, but really it's about connecting people around the world and creating that, that global link to help each other. Yeah, and I think that's a really great way to look at it is things that you can do locally, things you can do nationally and things you can do internationally. I'll just add another thing uh, to uh, shout out to Mark Swinkowski on how he started women at the University of Minnesota. And that is he appointed me as residency program director. So I do think if you are a chairman and you want to increase diversity, hire a residency program director that's female. I mean, there's no better way to attract females to your program than have a woman in a leadership position who's making the decisions about who's gonna be in that program or not. So again, I think that's just uh, one way that each program can locally uh, take action and then think about nationally and internationally things that you can do as well. If you're in those leadership positions, um, you have some power to make change, but even every single person can be a he for she or a privileged for an unprivileged. So even if you're a, another fellow resident and you're in rounds and you hear a staff person say something inappropriate to a female or a, a racial minority member of the group, speak up. You know, we call this being an upstander and not being a bystander. So you don't have to be a director, although that would be excellent, but you can just be you, you can be a fellow resident, 
But if you actually set the bar that those kind of things are unacceptable, that will change the grassroots culture. So the major culture change has to come from above, but there's lots of room for work from the grassroots and just not accepting things like that. So I challenge everyone, it doesn't matter what your power level is, be an upstander. Don't, don't listen to people saying things that they shouldn't be saying. Wow. Thank you, Laurie. I can't think of a better way to end this discussion. We, 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 we all have a lot of work to do and we can all do something to, uh, to, to make this uh, orthopedic world a better place for, for all people. Um, and Mo and I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to participate in this discussion and especially for on your vacation. And I'm sure there will be many people who listen to it and maybe take the next step forward. So thanks very much for spending your morning with us. And uh, don't forget to have your cup of joe. And, and maybe and maybe if we could send both Lori and Ann a special ortho joe cup. Could we do that, Mark? Could we do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Christina's on it already, I'm sure. It's a thanks, prized man. possession for day. your mantle. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs>